friend of mine came back from India a short time ago, and she had gone to visit a particular teacher that she was interested in. And she brought back with her a video of this teacher. And so she shared the video with me. It was kind of interesting, you know, it's so unromantic these days. One doesn't just go travel around and bump into one's teacher. One watches the person on video first. (laughs) And then chooses whether one wants to go or not. (laughs) The day of the Dharma bum is over. So, I watched the video, and it was, it was quite interesting. It was about a two-hour um, video of him with a group of people. And there was one thing that stuck out for me. The rest was just um, his interactions with various people. But at one point, someone put the video right in front of him, and um, said something like, you know, what do you want to say to the people back home? <laughs> you know, sort of, a, sort of a corny free-for-all kind of question. And he looked right at the camera, and he gave this big, wide, beaming smile, and he said, stay home. And then he cracked up, you know. (laughs) And, you know, first of all, I just laughed too. And um, then I started to reflect on it. And it truly was the most powerful thing about the whole, whole video for me. Because I saw it on a number of different levels. The first, you know, the literal level, stay home, I really didn't quite believe. Because the way his life is... He just sits in his room and people come and go. And he doesn't seem to be bothered or excited or bored or anything. He just sits and people come and go. So in terms of too many people coming, um, doesn't seem likely that this would be his mind state. The second level was what I was hearing him saying was that you don't have to go anywhere to be liberated. You know, you certainly do not have to come all the ways to India to see me in order to be free. It's inside you right now. And you can stay right in your little hall at IMS or CIMC or wherever you are. And it's the same because one carries one's mind and heart around with one. And so, you know, kind of don't waste your time. Stay home. And the third level that I saw, which was probably, or was very definitely the most profound level of this short little statement, was stay home, stay inside of your mind, stay inside of your heart. In other words, stay home, home. Don't let the mind wander. Don't let the mind go out and get itself into trouble. Just stay at home within yourself. 
So this is very striking to me. I really um, felt and heard this very clearly. And it reminded me of something else. When Larry and I went to Thailand several years ago, at the end of our visit there, <clears throat> we had a, an, an interview with Mahabua, the, our teacher there. And at the end of this little interview, um, Larry asked Mahabua if he had any advice for us in terms of how we could practice when we got home, when we got away from Thailand, when we came, when we came back to the States. And Mahabua just sat for a moment. He just was quiet. And then he said, just stay inside. <laughs> so it was the same thing, you know, the, very much the same thing. Just stay inside. Just stay home. And I think that this is very much what our practice is all about, is staying home. Is staying home inside of the heart, resting within the heart, whatever it is that happens, whether external events or internal events, resting with everything that occurs without rejecting, without any kind of violence, without pushing anything away, with the confidence that whatever arises unpleasant will go in its own way at its own time. And that any time we try to urge it on and make it go faster, it actually slows down that process. And also without holding on and dwelling in any of the things that the mind says, elaborating on, adding on to, moving away from the source, and the source is the heart, is the mind. So basically, staying at home within the heart means being mindful, being present with whatever it is that arises, with bodily sensations, with emotions, with thoughts, with feelings, with moods, everything in this body-mind. Being awake to whatever it is that's occurring. So, the question is, why don't we stay at home? Why don't we stay within the heart? Perhaps because we are under this somewhat grand illusion that staying within the heart is not a very good place to be, is a place of suffering. And perhaps meditation, perhaps our practice, is re-educating the heart, is retraining the mind is looking at our conditioning in a fresh way and seeing that perhaps it's actually a lot more suffering to look away than it is to look. It's actually a lot more suffering to not be here, to not be present, than it is to be 
caught up in something or another, whatever that something or another may be. And so we're looking at life, we're looking at our lives, we're looking at our hearts and our minds, and kind of going against the tide of our suffering, I'm sorry, of our conditioning, going against the tide of how we think things are, and really seeing underneath that to how things really are. And we see by gently being present, by caring for the heart in a tender way, and staying present, that actually things get a whole lot better. And what happens is that it becomes much more enjoyable to be at home within the heart. In other words, if we stay there, and if we nurture the heart, and if we make it an environment that we want to be in, an environment which has ease in it, and happiness, and, and some coolness, and peace, then we're much more likely to want to stay at home. And so the practice is about trying it out and seeing, working with beingness, staying with beingness, and seeing that perhaps it's a lot better to stay inside, to stay at home, within the heart, than it is to wander, than it is to move away. It's kind of an example, there can be an example used of a thorn that's in one's hand, where when you pull it out, it hurts, and yet one has to pull it out for there to be a healing. So often when we look at something that's difficult, that we don't want to look at, it can feel more intense. You have probably noticed that many, many times, that when you look at pain in sort of a sneaky way, it's bad. There's no doubt about that. But um, perhaps there's the fear that if you look at it in a more direct way, it will get more intense. And of course it does. It definitely gets more intense because one is directing one's attention to it. One is being with it in much more of a full way. But what we see is if we can stay with it, if we can keep our attention there even if it is a bit more intense, that it actually begins to change, that it is not something solid, that it is not permanent, that it does not have a core. And as we stay with anything, we see beyond it. We see that it is impermanent, whatever it is, arising and passing away, that it doesn't have any substantial core to it. And it's only by keeping the mind in the heart that we can learn this, that we can see this. So it requires a leap of faith. And sometimes it requires a lot of leaps over and over again. One leap may not be enough to convince us. And that's why we're practicing maybe 780 leaps later. Ah, maybe this really is the way it is. And so it's, it's taking a chance, taking a risk each time until the heart is impressed by this reality, until the heart absolutely, completely, utterly knows, has conviction 
that when it is within itself, there is no suffering. Now, it is important, very, very important and very helpful to work with the breath and the body in a sustained way. Because as we work in a sustained way with the breathing and with the body, what begins to happen is that one is naturally without a whole lot of effort, inside of the body. And then from that natural home, that happens only through being with the breathing and being with the body as much as possible all day long in whatever it is that we're doing, always coming back to the breath, to the body. What happens is that it becomes something that we can count on. It becomes a real refuge. It becomes its natural home, not a place that we return to, but we live out of this sense of being in the breath and being in the body. And then whatever else happens in terms of thoughts, in terms of feelings, in terms of emotions, in terms of events, whatever they may be, we are living out of something. We are living out of what is called the first foundation of mindfulness, And it's called the first foundation of mindfulness because it really is the foundation of practice to live out of the body, out of the breathing. Everything else can be happening and mindfulness can be with it. Mindfulness can extend itself from this sense of being with the body to anything, to everything. But it gives one an enormous amount of stability It gives us an enormous amount of steadiness. And so we're not just moving to thoughts and emotions and feelings, states of mind. We're coming from a place. We're coming out of this vehicle of the body, which really can't be emphasized too much. Sometimes I see it as this big secret because nobody believes it. It's not that it's a secret, it's, it's um, something very clear that, that the Buddha said in very simple ways and did not hide it until you got to a certain point in practice. You know, it's right here, right now that it, it is said. And yet, somehow, it takes quite a while before we really believe it, before we're willing to do it, before we're willing to sustain the attention. So I I sort of look at it as a secret, because one discovers it, it's said, and then somewhere along the line one really gets it. And ah, it's like, you know, it's like nobody, sometimes people will come in to interviews and they'll say, you didn't say, you know, something like that. Whereas that was all that was said. It's just not easy to hear until we do it some and, and practice it some. And do it a lot and practice it a lot. Yeah, (laughs) forget about the word some. (laughs) So what happens when we're not rooted in the heart? 
or grounded inside. What happens when we move outside? What's that process about? The word for this process is um, papancha, which means proliferation. It means that the mind starts to make up stories and then to believe in these stories. This is what proliferation is. And it's what Larry has talked about in terms of the dog running after the bone. Something happens, and then the mind, the heart, runs after it and runs with it and makes up some kind of a story about it, whatever it may be. Some stories are very dramatic and affect our lives a lot. And other stories don't really matter much. They just come and go. Some are stories that we find ourselves acting out of and getting in trouble about. Um, They really vary. What's important is to see what happens when the mind proliferates. It's very helpful to kind of um, trace back suffering, like how does suffering occur, and trace it back. And what you can see, what we can see, is that suffering occurs because of not wanting things to be the way they are, because of attachment. Wanting to hold on to something that can't be held on to because it's impermanent like everything else. Or wanting to push something away that can't be pushed away because everything arises and, and ceases in its own time. It's all part of nature and can't be pushed around. And then before attachment is either craving or aversion or some sense of confusion. These, these are the states that are right before attachment. And then if you go back before that, what there is is feeling. And feeling doesn't mean emotion here. Feeling means either a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling or a neutral feeling, one of the three. And then before feeling is contact. And contact is when a sense organ comes in contact with an object. So, for instance, the ear coming in contact with the sound. That, together with consciousness, with knowingness, is contact. So it's the sense organ. One has to have a sense organ and then it's an object, and there has to be an object, and then consciousness, and the three of them together create contact. Contact is happening in every moment. There is something happening through one of the senses in every moment. And in this way of looking at things, the mind is also included. So it's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. I had to have this part written down. I always forget one. And then, to start from the other way, there's contact, these three things coming together. There's an, an, um, a feeling that arises very immediately after contact. They're so close together, it's very, very difficult to separate them. It's really quick that there's a feeling. For instance, there's a sound, and then there is an immediate 
pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then if that feeling isn't seen, then it turns into craving or aversion or confusion. And then if that isn't seen, it turns into, um, into attachment, which is the same as saying that it turns into suffering. So, the interesting thing about this, and how this applies to staying at home and releasing ourselves from suffering, is that there's what's called a weak link in this chain of suffering. And the weak link is right after feeling. So, there's contact, which there always is. One can't do anything about contact. It's always happening as long as we're alive. And then there's feeling, and this is the way it is. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then if one can pick up on the feeling, be aware of the bare feeling, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, then there is space. There can be space. It doesn't have to follow this progression. It doesn't have to go into craving, aversion, confusion. So, of course, it doesn't have to go into attachment equals suffering. So that's the interesting place. That's kind of the exciting place in practice, is that one can be aware of feeling, of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. And what happens when we are is that we see that feeling is just feeling. It's no more, it's no less. It is just a feeling. It is what it is. Many times, of course, Um, many, many times, the mind is going to not take this kind of gap that it gets and go on into craving, aversion, confusion. But the sooner we can see it, the better. The more mindful we can be as this is happening, the better. And what happens is that a space gets created. There's a gap there. There's a spaciousness. And with that gap and that spaciousness, we become able to respond to various contexts, to various situations, rather than always having to mechanically react. This is where the freedom comes in. It doesn't mean that we aren't choosing to act sometimes, because there are situations, of course, this doesn't, isn't to make us vegetables or turnips or, you know, passive. But to bring in the element of choice is what makes it free and alive and possible to change patterns rather than working in the same rut time after time again and not knowing how to get free. So when we look at it in this way, we can see that we don't have to have pleasure, and we don't have to not have pain. There's a little bit more freedom in the whole process. We can see that our tendency is to try to collect that which is present, try to get as many pleasant experiences as possible, and try to avoid that which is unpleasant. And this sounds very rational and sane. I mean, it's an intelligent thing to do. The only problem is that it doesn't work. That's the only problem in it, but it's kind of a major problem. Because all these things are part of nature. 
pleasure arises and it, and it disappears, and it doesn't matter if we want it to be around longer. Whatever it is, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't take our personal feelings into account. It just arises, passes away. It's impersonal. It's part of nature. And the same way with pain. There are situations, absolutely, one can and should avoid pain. There are other situations where it's not possible to avoid pain. And so if we try to avoid it and it's not possible, then we're creating much more pain for ourselves. So in other words, with this whole thing, there is choice rather than just a blind reactivity. There's room if we can see feeling as feeling. I'll give you some examples in a, in a moment. This cuts the compulsive aspect within the mind. It makes everything not quite as automatic. If we're not mindful, if we're not aware, this change just happens, and it's automatic. It's just what happens. When we're mindful, it's not automatic, and we can see feeling as feeling, and then choose from there. When we're caught in that which is pleasant, we often overestimate it. This is just a very interesting thing to see. One has an idea, when I get home, I'm going to fill in the blank. We all have our our own thing. Whether it's see a particular person, or, or write a particular letter, or have a particular kind of food that has been missing here, a big plate of spaghetti or whatever, chocolate, Oh, sorry, I shouldn't be tempting you here. <laughs> Whatever. Whenever there's that, um, that kind of feeling of pleasure in the mind, there's often an overestimation of it. And then we get home. And that's not the first thing we do, go run and make ourselves a bowl of spaghetti or you know, write that letter that, of course, I have to write that feels pleasurable to be composing in the mind rather than being with the breathing. Um, or, you know, see that particular person. That's not usually the first thing we do. We do other things. And maybe when we do it, it's not what it's been cooked up in the mind to be. It's just what it is. The thought of spaghetti is not spaghetti. It's just a thought. I obviously have spaghetti mind. Um, So through this, we can see the impermanence of feelings, and we don't have to identify with them as being me and mine. At the same time, we're becoming more intimate with ourselves. We're getting to know ourselves in the way that we truly are, and not that the way that we think that we are, that we want to be, but as we truly are. And instead of that space being filled absolutely necessarily with craving or aversion or delusion, Instead, that space can be filled with much more refined and subtle and happy emotions, love and kindness and tenderness and, and nonviolence, benevolence. A benevolence can fill that space. And it allows for freshness. It allows for the possibility of not just repeating and repeating and repeating our patterns, whatever that may be, whatever the patterns may be.
So let me give you an example of what I, need, I mean by this whole thing, because it may be a bit too theoretical. I'll tell you a story. Um, some time ago, probably five or six years ago now, I was by myself doing a month-long retreat in a suburban house, out obviously in the suburbs. But it was it, it was the same as the guy who died. But anyhow, you can't get away from it. Um, but it was really what I mean is that it was really a suburban style house out in the suburbs, and <laughs> and what's important about that is that it reminded me of the house I grew up in, which was also in the suburbs, <laughs> and. For the first, I was totally by myself there. Um, for some reason, I, I was borrowing this house from some friends, and for some reason, they didn't have any curtains on the windows. And um, there were all these woods out in back, and just no curtains. In the daytime, I loved it. I was in Bliss City, because it was so peaceful and so beautiful, and the practice was going really, really well. And I just was so happy to be alone and to be practicing. And, you know, I was doing what we're doing here. I wasn't reading, I wasn't writing, I wasn't talking on the phone. I was just sitting and walking, sitting and walking. And, of course, I had to cook my own food. But I kept things very, very simple. So the first five days were fine. Gradually, I began to notice that as dusk came around each evening, there began to be this sense of impending doom. You know, there was sort of the, the, if I could sing it, it was sort of like, da, 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 da. (laughs) Every single evening at six o'clock or whenever it started to get dark. It took me a while to even identify that that feeling was there. It was very hard for me to even feel or acknowledge or know that the feeling was there. I was basically in a state of terror pushing it away the whole time. So it was good news to be able to identify at least the doom, the sense of doom. However, it wasn't great to identify it because (laughs) it just, you know, kept happening. And the nights got harder and longer and more fearsome. And it was a house where there were a lot of um, noises. It was kind of an old house. And there were a lot of little creaks in the, in the floor, lots and lots of noises. And it had a basement. These are two important facts. <laughs> so I would be sitting in the, um, the kitchen, trying to sit and trying to just be and be with my breathing. And all around me, there were all these little creaks happening. And... I was in a total state of, it was a nightmare. I was definitely in a state of, of, this is horrible. I definitely have to get out of here. And then the next morning would come, and I'd be so happy, and I, I wanted to stay. So I kind of went through this routine quite a while, for quite a few days. I also knew that I'd been carrying this fear around since I was a little kid, being afraid of, of not being alone, but being afraid of being alone in the dark. Um, you know, by woods where there were no curtains. I couldn't feel enclosed. 
And I remember when I was a little kid, I could never be sleeping in bed without something on top of me. I had to have at least a sheet. So here I am, it's July, and I have this big quilt that I have to have on me every single night. This was, you know, to create a little bit of of safety, a sense of safety. So what began to happen? I really felt quite desperate. And I had a few Dharma books with me, and I wrecked my brain, you know, how how to work with fear, fear. Not just fear, but fear, fear. And because it didn't feel like anything I had experienced in a very long time, probably since I was a kid. I had never experienced this kind of fear. And I'm sure it was because I was being with it, basically. I wasn't getting away from it in the ways I usually had. I was just determined to, to stay with it. And I racked my brain. I looked through my Dharma books. Nothing. There was, there was nothing that um, seemed comforting to me or seemed that I could really do. You know, seemed, seemed real to me because the images were so strong. Finally, and this is so beautiful, actually, because um, it just shows how much the Dharma is nature and the Dharma is inside of us. And it's not even about Buddhism. It's about finding out how things operate and how things work inside of ourselves, inside of oneself. And so I hadn't paid attention to this whole theory I just outlined to you um, until after I read up on it. But before then, I hadn't really paid much attention to this chain of suffering and weak, weak link part of it and where I could cut it. But what I began to notice, because I had to, is that every time a sound happened, every single time there was a creak, immediately my mind would create an image. Immediately my mind would kick up an image. And that image was horrible. That image was of a a monster or a ghost or a very, very, very big man with very, very big feet. (laughs) Seriously, it was like, you know, size 20 feet. (laughs) So I wasn't hearing the sound as a sound. I was seeing it as a gigantic foot. You know, of course, about to come and get me. That was the other part of it. But because I wasn't seeing it, I was lost in the terror about it. Once I began to see that it was happening because of the sound, because I had an ear that was able to listen to this object that was happening, and because there was knowingness and consciousness, out of that there was an image, there was a feeling, which was terrifically unpleasant, there was aversion, there was attachment, there was suffering. But it was so interesting because it was a life lesson. You know, I hadn't heard about this so much before, and I discovered it. And this is, this is the beauty of the Dharma, is that it's not outside, it's not in books, it's not in anybody. Um, our talks, hopefully, are just pointers because of our own experience. But it's in there for all of us to just discover. It, there's no place to find it. And it really taught me this because I was very much on my own. I didn't have any, anything or anybody to rely on. I, I have to admit, I made one phone call. <laughs> I called Larry. <laughs> he said, stay home, stay there. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it was, it was very helpful because, um, you know, he was basically saying there's nothing to be afraid of, which I didn't want to hear at all, but I also did want to stay. And it helped to create a tiny, tiny bit of calmness. What's very important in this whole process is that it's not about trying to control our feelings. It's not about repressing. And it's not about when we catch ourselves suffering, saying, oh, gee, I wish I'd caught it at feeling. Or I wish I'd, you know, known that sound or that thought or that smell or whatever it may be. It's about being mindful whenever we can. It's being mindful right now with whatever's happening. As the mind gets quieter, as the heart gets more still, we can see more clearly this chain of suffering. And there comes about a certain trust, a certain trust in the process, a certain faith in the process. We see that every moment that we're mindful, every moment that we're awake, deconditions the mind. Each moment that we're aware of whatever it is that's happening, regardless of the content, and we're not pushing it away, and we're not pulling it towards, and we're just allowing it to be, is a moment of freedom. It's worth it. Even if one has forgotten for the last half an hour or longer, it's worth it to be mindful right in this moment, right here and now. Because every moment is deconditioning the mind. Every moment is a moment of freedom. You know, often we think, I wasn't mindful, so why should I bother? But we do. But to, to bother really makes a difference. It makes an enormous difference. It just gets stronger and stronger. And we can only be mindful right now. If we're thinking about how we haven't been mindful, we're filled with regret and we're lost in a past that isn't happening. We can only be mindful right now. Staying at home also brings us closer to other people. It's not isolating. It's not separating to stay at home within oneself, within one's heart, to stay inside. It actually brings us into a deeper, more intimate contact with others. It eases the boundaries because we're less defensive, we're less defended, we're much more relaxed and at ease with ourselves less worried about who we are and who we want to appear to be, less worried about trying to become someone and less worried about being competitive and comparing ourselves to others in a favorable or an unfavorable light. We're much more at ease within the heart. Someone asked the um, Dalai Lama once who he hung out with, you know, like who he let his hair down with, well, he couldn't do that because he... <laughs> anyway, <laughs> figuratively. Um, who, he, who his buddies were and who he felt he could hang around with, you know, who was on his level in a, in a world of nincompoops, who was on the level of the Dalai Lama was kind of that question. 
and I don't know if you know how he talks. He has great voice. It's very deep, and he's just very kind of casual. And he said, "Oh, it's no problem. Everybody is my peer. Everybody. I can hang out with everybody." And the question, you know, who who is your peer? Who is your friend? Everybody is my peer. Meaning, no one is higher. No one is lower than me. This is real freedom. Um, let me just end with a quote from Ajahn Chah, which is called The Simple Path. Traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us, two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are our entire path, and the mind is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all the dharmas will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Just rest with things as they are. Give up craving, give up aversion. This is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. Of course, there are dozens of meditation techniques to develop samadhi and many kinds of vipassana. But it all comes back to this. Just let it all be. Step over here where it's cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? Do you dare? I think the end of this is, is what I was speaking about in terms of being willing to take the risk, being willing to take that leap of faith until the heart knows so deeply that there's no way Anything, anybody can tell it that it's not so. Why don't we sit for just a minute? Just before the Buddha died, he said a few things to his community. And we are also the recipients of what he said 2,500 years later. One thing that he said was, strive on untiringly. (laughs) Very strong words. As you may have noticed, Buddhism never minces words. And a Tibetan yogi named Milarepa said something during a retreat of his. He died a long time ago, but this is what he left us with, among other things. In one place, during a retreat... I meditated strenuously for 11 months, never allowing my cushion to lose its warmth. (laughs) In other words, he must have taken bathroom breaks and and food breaks, but he always came back before his cushion had totally lost that little warm place that it gets when we sit. So, obviously, effort is something that is very much being asked of us if we want to free ourselves, if we want to get to know who we are, liberate ourselves. 
But the question is, what is effort? Because this being one of the crucial factors on the path, what is it exactly? And so what I would like to look at tonight is what effort is and what effort isn't. To go about it from the isn't perspective first, what effort isn't, what it isn't is the attempt to become somebody. It's also not the attempt to become somebody else other than who we are. It is not about attaining any particular state of mind. It is not about maintaining any particular states of mind that may arise and trying to hold on to them. It's not about trying to see something in particular And it's not about trying to achieve something special. It has nothing to do with changing the contents of mind. And it has nothing to do with controlling the contents of mind. It also is not pushing anything away. And it is not clinging. It is not trying to hold on to anything at all. In the realm of meditation, the old rules don't apply. The effort that we grew up with, the effort that we've learned, our conditioned effort, effort often isn't a great word to use because there's so much charge to it. What's attached to the old kind of effort are ideas about success and about failure and about right and about wrong. And in the realm of meditation, these things have no place because the whole path has to do with what leads us away from suffering and what leads us into happiness, into peace, into freedom. So it has nothing to do with right, wrong, success, failure. And this is very often how our mind works. So to some extent, effort is about letting go of that old conditioning and learning in a new way what diligence is, what determination is in this endeavor of getting to know ourselves. What effort is, in a positive sense, is learning how to relate skillfully to the contents of our mind. Whatever it is that is in our mind, knowing that we can't control it because it's just nature, it's just conditioning, it arises. What we can work with, where we have the choice, and this is so very, very important, where we have the choice is that we can learn how to relate to the contents of our mind in a really different way. 
in a way that liberates rather than locks it in, whatever it may be. So the effort basically is to understand ourselves. That's it. It's to understand. It's not to try to change. It's not to try and push. It's not to try to reject or to eliminate anything from our world, from our mind. It's rather the attempt to understand what is, to understand exactly what we find in our mind, to understand our situation or Maybe we could say our dilemma. Effort is acknowledging states of mind that obscure peace, that hide Buddha nature from us, that are kind of a veil over calmness and tranquility, over the natural radiance in our minds. And so some of what effort is about is acknowledging what these states may be, rather than being lost in them, acknowledging and naming. One of the things you may have seen in the, well, I shouldn't say may, I'm sure all of us have, in the last couple of days, is how much the mind likes to think pleasant thoughts. There's a tendency for the mind to sort of loll around in thoughts that are very pleasant. The mind is drawn to pleasant thinking. And we can see in that that the mind likes to get absorbed in pleasure. Now, there's nothing wrong or right about this. And if we look at it really closely, perhaps we can see that the pleasant thoughts don't really get us anywhere. It can be compared to starting off going somewhere and getting on the wrong train, thinking that you're going some particular place but taking the wrong train instead. But then, because there are beautiful colors in the train and you like the conductor and he's very kind, the old-style conductor, and you have a nice, pleasant companion next to you, doesn't smoke, or does smoke if you do, there's a a real companionship, you get chatting away, and then you find out at some point that you're going in the wrong direction. But maybe you don't even get off because you're having such a good time. (laughs) Which is, you know, tends to be what the mind does. We notice that the mind is going in the direction of pleasant thought after pleasant thought after pleasant thought, And then perhaps we have a moment where we can jump off the train. And perhaps there's this compelling force to dive back in. And that is something that we just simply want to acknowledge and see. Now when I say that, um, you know, it's like getting on a train and finding out that you are going in the wrong direction, Part of what the practice is, is finding out where we do want to go and experimenting. In other words, one doesn't want to just force the mind back to the breathing based on somebody saying that that's a good idea. See what happens. 
if you go, if the mind is in this state, there's a lot of desire in the mind, there's a lot of wanting to think about pleasant things, see what happens. You know, see if it's going in a direction of peace. See if it really does lead one to freedom and to happiness. Because these teachings are very much to be tested. They're not to be believed. They're not, they're not to be taken in a blind way. But to see when there is this compelling need to dive back into pleasurable thoughts, into desire, see if when you pop out again, you have come to any place better than where you started off. Just to check that out. See if the mind is, is more peaceful or maybe it's a little bit more tired. Maybe you can just catch a little bit of, of tiredness in that. And this is, this is very helpful because um, we're not trying to convince ourselves of anything. Effort in meditation it isn't about trying to convince ourselves of anything. It's about understanding how things work, how things operate. What is the force of desire in the mind? And how can we work with it in a skillful way? So that we're not rejecting, saying this is wrong, this is bad. And at the same time, we're seeing maybe it needs to be let go of. Maybe there is more peace, more joy, more happiness to be found right here and now. And that the pleasurable thinking, the, this compulsion to think about certain things, is a way of hiding from something else that's going on. Perhaps there's an ache that one is hiding from. And so there's a lot of pleasurable thinking so that one doesn't have to feel that ache. And as we allow ourselves more and more to be with what is, to be with perhaps the ache, we see that it changes. It does indeed go in the direction that we want to go in. But this is something to try. It's something to experiment with. It's not something to force the mind into. Perhaps there are a lot of things happening in the mind, Um, a lot of restlessness occurring, a lot of sleepiness or dullness. Um, Perhaps there's a feeling of aversion of just not wanting things to be a certain way, not wanting the aversion to be there, aversion to aversion, not wanting to be sleepy, not wanting to be dull, not wanting to be restless, that kind of agitated, restless feeling within the body, or perhaps in the mind when you notice the mind is going from place to place to place. And you can recognize that there's a certain agitation there. And then the mind says, this shouldn't be like this, or I don't deserve this. (laughs) You know, the mind starts talking. Or the mind says simply, I don't want it to be this way. I just don't like it this way. When there is this very strong feeling of it shouldn't be that w- this way, there is also an accompanying feeling of blame or of judgment or of guilt, whatever the object may be. And so we, we want to notice what is happening and then to 
come to the place that maybe it shouldn't be this way. In a, in a totally reasonable world, maybe it wouldn't be this way. And of course I don't want it to be this way. Of course, as a sane human being, I don't want to feel restlessness. I don't want to feel dull when I should be sitting up straight. I don't want to feel aversion. And yet, this is the way it is. And this is part of what effort has to do with, is the understanding that we can rail against it all we want, and we can say that it shouldn't be, and we can very much say, I don't want it to be. And this is all fine, that this all goes through the mind. It's not that it shouldn't be happening. It's not that these thoughts shouldn't be going on in the mind. It's also, at the same time, coming to a different level where we see that whether we want it to be this way or not, it is this way. And in that isness, there's a certain acceptance. There's immediately a bit of rest that the mind receives, simply by being able to come to see that it is indeed this way. And then the question changes. It changes from how do I get out of this, and how do I eliminate this, and how do I get rid of this terrible feeling, to how can I come to terms with it, which is quite different. In other words, there's acceptance that this is the way it is. And then the question is, how can I deal with it? How can I work with it? It's, it's gone um, beyond the why is it happening, looking for causes and running after causes. And it's gone into how, how am I relating to it? So it's not even so much on the what, what is happening. It's much more on how am I working with it? And this is where a lot can happen. This is the space in practice where possibilities are just endless in this space in terms of how I am relating to it. Sometimes one feels a bit squeezed in a retreat setting and feels that it wouldn't be happening if I weren't here. You know, if they weren't making me (laughs) sit and feeding me at this certain time and, you know, taking all my control away from me, these things wouldn't be happening. I wouldn't feel restless. I wouldn't have anything to feel aversion towards. Um, You know, (laughs) these, these things wouldn't be occurring. And of course, when we look at it, what we see is that our retreat simplifies our life in such a way that we are able to see at that we are able to see that which is happening all the time that we are usually moving away from in other words in life as usual perhaps there is a great deal of restlessness but we just we just don't see it because we're busy doing other things we're busy um, immediately when we feel it we move away from it in some way we call someone on the phone or you know the refrigerator opens mechanically and we don't even know how it opened Um, But on a retreat, everything is there for us to see. Because it's a simplified situation, we are just here with ourselves. And because of that, it's possible to see more and more what is really happening within us, and at the same time to come to terms with what is happening. 
to understand and to free ourselves from whatever it is that's occurring that is keeping us caught or imprisoned. In order to be able to understand, in order to be able to see, in order to come to the liberating understanding that we're searching for, the understanding that really does free us, it's necessary to get close to whatever it is that's happening. If we're keeping things at an arm's distance over here, then there's no possibility of understanding because it's not close enough. We're not in contact with it enough to really see what's going on, to really understand. And this is where the breath comes in because the more we can very gently and without forcing be with the breath, be present with each inhalation, be present with each exhalation, the more we can do this, the more we're building up our strength to be with more difficult states of mind. So that when aversion arises, it doesn't immediately squelch us. So that when restlessness arises, we don't feel totally out of control. We have a chance at being able to work with it. When sleepiness arises, it's okay. It's not terrible. It's not um, something we're struggling with or doing as much battle with. So being with the breath is very, very helpful because it allows for a strength in the mind to develop, for an ability to sustain our attention on whatever we would like to sustain it on to happen so that we're not pushed around and pulled around so much by various states of mind. It also helps with staying composed to work with the the breath, to be as careful as possible with the breathing, helps us to stay composed and not panic quite as much when we find ourselves in a funny place. And this is very, very important, whether one finds oneself really, really restless or very pushing away, feeling an enormous amount of of, um, of aversion happening, of resistance happening, To just stay still is very, very helpful. To just stay calm about the whole thing. Because when we panic, we begin to flail around inside. We all look like very good yogis just sitting here. And yet, if there were a a movie that could go inside of the mind and the body, it would be quite a different story, probably. I mean, you know yourself. But probably there would be a lot of inner flailing happening. You know, like little little bodies, little little baby us's, kind of moving us around, pushing things around in the body and in the mind, and we exhaust ourselves when we get into this flailing mode. So when this happens, and it happens to everyone at some point, it's very very helpful to not try to get rid of what is happening because this kind of effort doesn't work. It's much more effective to be very, very quiet and very, very still and look around at one's environment. What is actually happening here? 
restlessness, but then one breaks it down and one feels, ah, that means there's a buzzing feeling in my chest right now. Or it means that there is, there are a lot of thoughts happening right now and they're going from one after to another to another. One can be aware of this broken down sense and it helps to keep one calm and still and quiet rather than getting panicky and getting exhausted. There are a few images that um, may be helpful in terms of working with the mind. One is the image Ajahn Chah speaks about. He was a a Thai meditation teacher. Um, He speaks about not feeding the cat. And (laughs) this means that when these states of mind come around, we don't have to feed them. In other words, when a cat comes by, when a stray cat comes by one's house, if you feed the cat, it comes back day after day after day. This is the nature of cat, because it knows it's going to get fed, so it comes back to the same place. So not feeding the cat, in terms of the mind, means not feeding the states of mind by pushing away and by trying to cling. And we see, just as with a cat, the cat gets tired. The cat doesn't come around anymore if it knows it's not going to get fed. In the same way, these states of mind stop coming around because they know they're not going to get any nourishment. There's another image which has to do with not feeding the fire. And what this means is when there's a fire and one is putting fuel on the fire, of course, it's going to keep burning. If you simply stop putting the fuel on the fire, yes, there's going to be a burning feeling, and eventually the fire's going to die. The fire's going to cease. And this is exactly what happens to states of mind, is that when we don't push away, when we don't cling, and when we don't identify, gradually, 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 emphasis on the gradually, these states do cease. They do change. They are handleable. They are workable. And then there's another, that the first image was from Ajahn Chah. The second image is a very old Buddhist image. And the third image comes from the Boston Globe. It's a New England proverb. You can't keep trouble from coming, but you don't have to give it a chair to sit on. So, of course, what this means is that we can't help it. We can't help the way the mind is. It just simply is the way it is. And we don't have to settle it all in and nourish certain states of mind. We can simply allow whatever is there to come and to go, to come and to go, to come and to go. There are a few hints in terms of working with effort that I'd like to to pass on. One is that it's very helpful to use the form of a retreat like this to its maximum. It's very, very useful to work through the various ebbs and flows of energy that we feel. So to really stay consistent with the walking, with the sitting, 
with this sitting, with the walking, to really stay consistent with it, to use the schedule as much as possible. Because we'll see that the energy goes up and down and up and down, and that we can work with something that is beyond that ebb and flow of energy. We can work with diligence or determination, which is not exactly the same thing as energy. You know, energy is a certain feeling in the body or a certain feeling in the mind, whereas diligence is something, even if there isn't a whole lot of energy, one can still be diligent. One can still have a certain amount of determination. That's why it's possible to work with sleepiness or dullness. It wouldn't be possible because that's, a, that's when the energy is not really full. And it is possible to work with sleepiness or with dullness. So this is very helpful. And one can set oneself free in terms of working with the form by knowing that we don't have to feel like it. You know, you can really get stuck in this thing. Do I really feel like sitting right now? No, of course I don't. Do I really feel like walking right now? No. Do I feel like getting up at five in the morning? Absolutely not. And yet one can do it anyhow. And it's very, very helpful to liberate oneself from this um, having to be imprisoned by one's feelings, by having to be enslaved by whether I feel like doing it or whether I don't feel like doing it. There's something that is deeper than that that brought us all here that is happening right now for each one of us. And this is what we can call upon rather than having to feel like it each time, always checking the mind. Um, You know, even if one knows, yes, I'm going to get up at five, or yes, I know I'm going to do the next sitting, it's not as if it's a choice that one is or isn't. One is. But still, maybe you can notice that there's a subtle checking of the mind about whether you feel like doing it or not. This is very helpful to see, because it can be laid aside, and it's very helpful to do so. It has to do with lifting the mind up and surrendering to the form, surrendering to the sitting, surrendering to the walking, and being very full in whatever activity that we're doing. One point is when one gets discouraged and um, wonders why one is here, the point is that we are here. You know, we're not eating ice cream right now, and we're not doing this and that. We're not going to movies. We've made a choice to spend the next amount of time with ourselves in this situation. So giving up all of those things, um, certainly we might want to use this situation to its fullest and see what can come out of that, what can come out of fully surrendering to the practice to that which knows inside us that it truly is worth it. Sometimes it's helpful to do it as an experiment. It's not that one has to have all this enormous faith in the practice in order to be practicing. Um, You can do it as an experiment in that you're walking and the mind is perhaps full of doubt. You can say something to yourself like, okay, but I have to be here anyhow. I know I'm going to keep walking. So... Can I just surrender for the next 20 minutes to the sensations of walking, staying with the lifting, moving, placing, period? 
And of course, the mind will go off. But when we notice the mind going off, to really make a determined effort to bring it right back. And the same with the breathing, a determined effort to bring it right back into the present moment once again. And if you do this in kind of a light, experimental way, then it's not as if you have to resign yourself for the next nine days to just being with your breath or just being with sensations in your feet or whatever image you may be carrying around with you. Um, It's more just, okay, I'll lay it aside for now and see what happens. And then, you know, surely at the end of 20 minutes, maybe something has just a teeny bit, there's a teeny tiny bit more peace or a teeny tiny bit more ease in the mind. And so it gives one a bit of faith to to continue. Another hint is to turn towards the breathing or, or to turn towards whatever the state of mind that is overwhelming the breathing, what I was just speaking about in terms of desire or aversion or restlessness, doubt, um, sleepiness, whatever it may be, if it's overpowering the breathing. But to turn towards is what effort is. It's nothing more than that. It's not to completely swing around. It's not to turn halfway. It's to turn towards. So it's, it's a pretty gentle movement. It's just turning towards the breathing. And then it's covering the object, whatever the object is. In this case, we're with the breath most of the time. So it's covering the breath with mindfulness. It's completely um, rubbing up against the sensations of the breathing. It's aiming the mind, turning the mind towards the breathing and aiming the mind at the breath. And then it's rubbing the mind up against the sensations of breathing. And then it's staying with it. It's working with a certain sense of continuity. And often the image used here is of a tea kettle where if you have it on the stove and you keep picking it up to see if it's boiled, it never gets boiled because you keep picking it up to check. So without checking, um, a sense of continuity, being with one breath after another, being with one step after another. And sometimes things happen when we do this that um, kind of sneak up on one. Um, Suzuki Roshi talks about this, and it actually happened the other day. I felt like a spiritual cliché. I was out taking a walk, and it was kind of dreamy out. It was a couple of days ago, and it was very, very dreamy, and kind of dreamy atmosphere. And there was um, a mist occurring. It wasn't raining, raining. There was just this very, very, very subtle mist. You couldn't even see it. And so I decided to go out for a walk anyhow. And um, walked just down to the lake and back. And I had a, a coat on and, you know, socks and sandals. And when I got back, I was completely drenched. My hair was totally wet. My whole, my whole coat and feet were totally drenched. But I didn't realize it when, I was, when it was happening. And this is kind of the way the practice happens. When we're not checking so much, when we're not worrying so much, when we're not evaluating what our progress is, how we're doing so much, um, we see that something happens. And just, you know, this, this way of just speaking about the mist, that we get soaked with something. And then, ah, this is what it is. You know, but it, but it sneaks up on you. 
It's not because it runs away when one's looking for P-E-A-C-E or for F-R-E-E-D-O-M. It doesn't mean anything. It runs away. Uh, It's not real. It's just an, an idea that we have or based on a memory. You know, but for it to be real, it's kind of this sneaking up kind of thing and then, ah, yes, this is it. There's two warning signals I would just like to share, um, which is when the effort isn't really right. One is when you find yourself waiting a lot, when you find that you're waiting, you're in a sitting and you're waiting for the walking. You're in a walking, you're waiting for the sitting to happen. You're in a walking and you're waiting for lunch to happen. You're eating and you're not really eating. You're waiting for something else to happen, for the walk after lunch, perhaps. Um, there's, there's always a sense of not fully doing what we're doing because of something to come. And this is an, a warning signal that one needs to pay more attention in the moment to whatever state of mind is happening. It's a signal to either drop completely and fully into the breathing at that point, or to just drop a notch below waiting mind and see what's happening, see what's going on, stay in the body and see what's going on. Um, It's experienced a lot just in terms of the bell. You can have a lot of sittings where you're just waiting for the sitting to be over, waiting for the bell to ring. And it's very important to recognize waiting mind rather than getting totally lost in it and thinking that, you know, this is the way I'll, I'll just do my retreat. And the hours would just fly by and, you know, no problem. But instead of that, to notice that this is happening, to notice that this quality of waiting is happening. Because this waiting mind is very oppressive. There's quite a pressure in it. And if we notice that waiting is happening rather than being lost in it, then there's some air, then there's some room, then there is not the necessity to be oppressed. The same thing is true if you find that you're bored a lot, if you find that there's a lot of boredom in the mind or any boredom in the mind. Whenever there's boredom in the mind, it is also a warning signal that one is not paying close enough attention to what's happening. And so again, it's like a red light going off that one needs to adjust the effort. One needs to go right into the breathing at that point and see what it is that's happening. See exactly what's happening on this inhalation, exactly what's happening on this exhalation. Very, very careful. It means the effort has to be sharpened a bit. Okay, let me just leave you with a... um, a quote by Krishnamurti. When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or solution even, neither resisting nor avoiding, it is only then that there can be a regeneration, because then the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. Okay, why don't we sit for a moment or two together?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.